Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And I am excited yet again because I have a guest. And once you hear this, brother, you'll understand why I'm excited to have him on. Uh, This brother is one of those brothers that has done a lot of work to help black people in the state of Georgia and really nationwide. And he's not a household name, but once you hear what he has to say, uh, I think you'll understand why I wanted him on the show. Um, so without any further ado, let me go ahead and introduce Dexter Wimbish. Dexter Wimbish is an attorney, community activist, fundraiser, adjunct professor, father, and minister who has worked nationally in the area of civil and human rights for two decades. He is a member in good standing with the Georgia Bar Association and an experienced professional with proven ability to provide operational and strategic planning that promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion in complex nonprofit organizations while being a staunch advocate for justice in America's legal system. He has nearly 20 years of diversified managerial, legal, diversity, and governmental relations experience working with progressive organizations to change public policy, promote diversity and inclusion, and create new inroads for future generations. His experience includes working with national civil and human rights organizations, to promote diversity and multiculturalism in various municipalities, foundations, corporations, and Fortune 500 companies, including Walmart, CompuCredit, City of Atlanta, City of New Orleans, City of Pensacola, Barnes & Noble Books, Cracker Barrel, Kroger, Home Depot, Southern Partners Fund, the Marguerite Casey Foundation, Ford Foundation, Veach Foundation, 
Public Welfare Foundation, John Deere Tractors, and the Southern Company. He is the current general counsel of the Southern Partners Fund and the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. In addition to working with a number of civil and human rights organizations, he held the distinction of being named the youngest general counsel in the history of the National Southern Christian Leadership Conference from 2004 to 2010. His appointment followed his recognition as the organization's 2003 Chauncey Eskeridge Legal Award, named in honor of the organization's first general counsel under the founder, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that was for his volunteer legal service. During his tenure, he provided legal oversight for the construction of a $4 million SCLC International Headquarters and the $1 million sale of historical SCLC papers to Emory University in 2008. He is also credited with helping to revive the Southern Christian Leadership Foundation while establishing nearly 100 SCLC chapters across the country. His work includes helping design and implement the SCLC Ambassadors for Peace program that trained over 1,200 young people in the city of Atlanta juvenile court system to use principles of Kingian nonviolence. His other professional and community service work includes deputy director for the Center of Democratic Renewal founded by Dr. C.T. Vivian, a lieutenant of Dr. King to monitor hate groups, general counsel and development director of the environmental justice group, the Newton, Newtown Florist, Regional Director of the Public Campaign Reform Organization, Democracy South. Vice President of the Healthcare Reform Organization, U.S. Action. Vice President of the Southeast Regional Economic Justice Network. And Treasurer of the National Fannie Lou Hamer Project. He has helped raise more than $10 million in his career for various nonprofit and community-based organizations. A member of the Advisory Committee of the Georgia Diversity Council, he has served as spokesperson for various nonprofit organizations while serving as a panelist of keynote speaker for nearly 100 conferences. Mr. Wimbish has conducted dozens of trainings in diversity, conflict resolution, and preventing racism. He has appeared as an expert on racism and civil rights on various television and print outlets, including MSNBC, CBS, The Tavis Smiley Show, Public Eye, and NPR. Dr. Dexter Wimbish completed his doctorate in higher education leadership from Grand Canyon University in 2022. He holds a Juris Doctorate and Masters of Public Administration from the prestigious Midwestern institution, Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, where he was an Opperman Scholar. He is a former Presidential Scholar and a 1994 Class Salutatarian from Morris Brown College one of the nation's oldest historically black colleges and universities. The college holds the distinction of being the first college in the nation to be founded by African-Americans for the benefit of African-Americans. He is a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and has received a number of awards for his outstanding community service. Mr. Wimbish currently serves as an adjunct, adjunct professor for Mercer University. In 2014, he was appointed as the first African-American municipal court judge in the 200-year history of Greensboro, Georgia. He is a licensed minister. The 2013 Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Robert Benham Community Service Recipient 
and a National Diversity Council Multicultural Award winner. In 2019, Drake University honored him as the National Alumni of the Year for Community Service. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, the Honorable Dexter Wimbish. All right, Dexter Wimbush. How you doing, my brother? You doing good? I am wonderful, Eric. Good to see you. Good to see you, brother. It's been a while since we've looked each other in the face. Um, uh, for the listening audience, my history with Brother Wimbush uh, is through the SCLC. Uh, he came down to help us get organized and start a chapter in Jackson, Mississippi after a number of years. And uh, he's been doing a lot of great things since then. Of course, I covered all that in the intro, what he's been doing. But um, Brother Wimbush, I wanted to I wanted to pick your brain on a couple of subjects that's going on. Uh, but normally what I do is with the guests is that I throw a quote at them. And it's either something dealing with their work or something that they may have said or written in a book or whatever, and okay. just want you to elaborate on the quote. So the quote for you comes from Joe Biden. During his inaugural address, he said, a cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. What does that quote mean to you? Well, I think America is at a crossroads. And I think that we have reached a point where, you know, after President Obama's administration, we really, some of us, not myself, believe that the fight for racial justice was over, that we had reached the, you know, the tip of the spear, uh, got to the mountaintop. And even during that administration, <clears throat> the, the plight of African-Americans was pushed to the side, in my opinion, at, at many levels. And we're just getting to a point now, some eight years after that administration, that we're beginning to understand that the fight for racial justice uh, is an ongoing fight. And this is not a colorblind society. And the, the person who made the quote, if you look at Joe Biden, President, former uh, President Joe Biden, if you look at his history, uh, his history is not one that has, has always been seen as um, pro-African-American. Uh, the author of the 1994 crime bill that we are still uh, fighting against uh, the results of that crime bill that he and others passed. And at the time they believed they were doing the right thing. It's interesting, I was watching the video today and when he was talking about the crime bill and he was, <laughs> he was saying that he didn't, he didn't want to hear about how people got to that place. He didn't want to hear about them not having the resources to, uh, to the resources to be successful. He didn't want to hear about the fact they didn't have fathers in the home. They're out here uh, hitting, uh, beating our people over the head, and they need to go to jail. Um, and I think you know that quote. It sort of capsulizes where we are in America now when it comes to race and, and racial relations. Even our friends or our so-called friends don't truly understand 
the the damage that was done by by racism and slavery, and they continue to bury their heads in the in the sands and pretend like racism is over, uh, but it's not. It, it it really is not. And I think that quote it moves me to move with urgency. I'm not as young as I used to be, and um, and I want my last years. You know, hopefully I get another thirty or forty years, but Whatever time I get left on this earth, you know, I've I've actually uh, transitioned. Uh, you spoke of SCOC, and I really don't spend much of my time now in the trenches in terms of civil rights. I've moved to a more localized approach and looking at looking inward at at to what we as a community need to do to empower ourselves. Uh, we're one of those communities and people don't want to have this conversation. But over the last 30 years, we've given up a lot. We've given up standards in our community. We've given up expectations of our young people. Uh, right now, black on black crime, and it has just become ex totally accepted. And this whole culture of, uh, of gangs and this culture uh, of uh, I don't want to say rap, but the culture of street, the street violence, this street culture. Uh, we are portraying ourselves in many cases as animals. And that's something that we have to address. And I'm going to come back to that because uh, I kind of wanted to close out the interview talking about those specific issues and especially as it relates to organizations. Um, but I wanted to pick your brain first about, so you wear a lot of hats, right? You, you're, you're a lawyer. Uh, you've been a judge. You're still a judge, right? Um, you've been a candidate for public office. So you're a politician in a sense. <laughs> I know you probably don't want to admit that, but you know, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, and then you're also a minister, right? So I wanted to kind of, in this interview, kind of pick all of those different brains. Oh, also, and you're a professor, and you, you're, I can't ignore that, a professor, or a PhD, all that. So I want to try to, in, in this interview, hit all those things. So the first thing I want to hit is the lawyer part. Um, so a lot of people that listen to the podcast and, and follow the news have heard about the the case here in Georgia against Donald Trump mm -hmm. and, and that he, he and 18 other co-conspirators have been charged with RICO charges. Explain to the listeners what exactly the Georgia RICO is and why that seemed to be the best strategy to go after him and, and others as opposed to, say, individually charging each one of those folks um, separately? Well, Georgia actually has one of the better RICO statutes for prosecutors in the country. And you know, traditionally, it has been used uh, elsewhere, it has been used to target uh, the mafia, things of that nature. But here in Georgia, I mean, right here in the Spalding County, we just had a recent RICO case. We got 75 75 defendants in the RICO case. Uh, that's a 
it's that's an amazing number of people to be up on the RICO. Uh, but the thing about RICO is you don't have to necessarily have direct evidence that you did something. You just have to show that you're part of a criminal criminal enterprise that that furthers the, the crime. And so what we have here is you have Donald, uh, former President Donald Trump calling uh, our se Secretary of State Brad Rassenberg and asking him to go out and find 11,000 votes so that he could essentially win the state of Georgia and hopefully win the election. Uh, the RICO charge comes along, it allows the prosecutors to build, essentially it, there's a web and they you weave this together in this web. You don't have to have, you don't have to have, everybody doesn't have to be a part of uh, the, the central decision-making part, in, the, the central decision-making in the crime, they just have to play a part in it that furthers that enterprise. And so that's why you got these 19 individuals who allegedly at, at some point made phone calls and, and tried to influence individuals to uh, take action to essentially overturn the election here in Georgia, including coming up with uh, elect, uh, electors who uh, a new electors who would then certify Donald Trump. And so one of the things about RICO is be, because you have different levels of participation, the hope is that those individuals who are charged in the RICO action begin to turn on the primary target. And so that's what you, that's what you have now. It's just a matter of time. Just today, the court ruled that uh, two of the defendants will have their trial to start in October. Uh, the state is saying that, you know, that's really not efficient. If we're going to have a, a, a speedy trial, it needs to have a speedy trial for everybody, as opposed to having to try this case over and over again. You know, this, the state basically doesn't want to have 19 different trials, and they gotta, they got to produce the same evidence at 19 different trials. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the RICO statute here in Georgia was used by Powell Howard, former uh, DA, to prosecute uh, uh, the teachers who were involved in that uh, cheating scandal, I know, some years ago. So that was another instance where the RICO statute was used to go after African-Americans. Right. And, and, and DA Fonnie Willis was the lead attorney in that case. Uh, she was. And so that's that's why she has that experience. And and as you mentioned today, as we're recording this, um, the judge has agreed to sever. Uh, Two individuals. Yeah, I think it was uh, Donald Trump and somebody else. I can't remember who the other person was, but it was. I think it was his motion, and so that kind of set the tone. So right now it's going to be Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro on October twenty third. And then the other 17, we got to figure out uh, when they're going to set dates for that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, I guess the um, uh, the other thing about this is the 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 grand the special grand jury that was impaneled because Georgia does things different than a lot of other states. They have a special grand jury to investigate. Then they have a regular grand jury to offer the true bills of indictment. Um, the special grand jury felt that there were 21 other individuals in addition to the 19 that should have been indicted. Why do you think as a professional, as somebody that actually 
sought to be a district attorney. What do you think the legal strategy was with DA Willis not going after the other 21 folks that were recommended? Uh, they probably had conversations with the other 21 folks. They've already said it's going to be at least 150 witnesses. It wouldn't surprise me if they got with those other 21 individuals and their attorneys and they said, hey, if we don't indict you, will you cooperate? You know, help us build, help us build this case against the other 19. The other 19 who probably played a larger role. Uh, that's the thing about RICO. You know, uh, in some RICO cases, they actually bring people in for case for charges that they've already been convicted on, served their time. They then go back and tie that into the RICO case saying, uh, in, said it's not double jeopardy because their action is furthering the, the criminal enterprise. And so there are a lot of things going on, going on behind the scenes. Um, interesting enough, the, uh, the African-American, I can't think of his name now, who was uh, the director of Black Voices for Trump. Right. Uh, the only individual who actually spent a night in jail over those 19 defendants. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see whether or not he's going to be the first one to to, to sort of flip. Um, maybe he realizes now uh, that he is not as well thought of as he may have thought he was before these indictments. Yeah, I don't think he's, this is my opinion, I don't think he's going to be the first one to flip, but I think he will because he's the only one that can't really seem to get his legal act together. Um <laughs> You know, he didn't he didn't have anything set up. Even the young lady that was Ye's publicist was able to get in and get out. Um, mm -hmm. But he's the only guy that didn't seem to have his act together as far as counsel and being, you know, prearranging his bail and all that. I think some of the other folks will flip before him because he he's been on TV, uh, you know, just kind of professing his loyalty or whatever. But mm -hmm. um so you're saying, and we'll put a we'll put a pin on that uh, with this question. So you're saying there's a possibility that Lindsey Graham, the U.S. Senator from South Carolina, and Burt Jones, the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Georgia, who were part of the 21 that didn't get indicted but was recommended to be, uh, they possibly could be witnesses against the other 19. I, I think so. And the other thing that's going on is just the fight within the Republican Party. You know, Trump, I think he's leading all of the candidates by 30 to 40 points. And, and and really, this trial is probably the only thing that gives them a chance to take, con take control back of the Republican Party, because right now it's Trump's party. And, you know, Trump is caught. He's, he's calling the shots. You know, you know, whether you like him or whether you hate him, he is a shrewd individual. Um, I saw the video where uh, you had black people lined up on the street when they brought him in for uh, his uh, to be booked. And he he literally took that video and made another video. And he said, I want to thank Vine City and all the, the communities throughout. <laughs> and he, for coming out and showing the support for us, you know that you know, and he's using that to recruit black people into the Republican Party. You know that's just how shrewd this, how shrewd he is. Now you you can't sleep on Trump. You know people want to discount Trump, 
But you don't get to where he is and make the kind of money that he's made using other people's money and not be, you know, highly, highly intelligent. You know, whether or not he's a, a narcissist or whatever you want to call him, you know, you can't discount the fact this guy, he he manipulates the media and TV like no other. I mean, he is just awesome at being able to spin a narrative. And, and not only mainstream media, but social media as well. You know, the old saying, they say you could be slick as a fox or crazy as a fox. I say he's just a fox. He can do both. <laughs> right? So, look, yeah, one, one of the – you mentioned about the Republican Party. One of the names that is coming up as an alternative, even though this individual has not expressed any desire to run for president or anything else, um, is – Governor Brian Kemp here in the state of Georgia. And he has kind of taken some public positions to distance himself from what has happened with the election. But has somebody who has had to deal with him, uh, especially in a race that you had to run in, I want you to, to paint this picture because there are some people who are saying, well, Kemp can't be that bad if he's against Trump. I want you to explain to people why this man ain't a saint. Whew. You just look at the legislature that, that, that he's been behind, the legislature he's been behind. I'll take right here in, in, in my home county of, um, of Spalding County. You know, he and others sponsored a bill that essentially took over uh, the election board here in Spalding County. Even though, you know, our poppers voted 70% of Trump for Trump. But they went in and took over the election board here and in, in other places. Uh, they introduced legislation where they now can remove DAs who they feel are not uh, uh, not doing their job. There was a situation down in Augusta where there was an African American who won uh, who won a DA's race, and and Kemp and others t- went in and created a whole new judicial district judicial circuit. And in Sicily, uh, the, the African-American, he has a circuit that is mostly African-American, and they placed a, a white over the circuit uh, that is major, majority white. Um, you look at uh, Senate uh, House Bill 202, uh, which was a comprehensive election reform package led by, you know, Brian Kemp, and they did away with such things as drop... Uh, uh, drop ballot boxes, warming the warming the lines. They put all the, putting all these restrictions on getting people out to vote. We've had thousands of people removed from the the election uh, poll uh, election rolls over over the last five years. Uh, it's, it's no and there's no secret that Governor Kemp has higher aspirations, and uh, if, and he is I think he's probably a a good candidate. To juxtapose against somebody like a Trump or even a Ron, a Ron DeSantis, uh, he seems to be a little bit more palatable. Uh, uh, he, he's a and he's a very shrewd he's a very shrewd governor. You know he's able to you know push back on the expansion of Medicaid here in Georgia now for years. You know he he's very very good at what he does. Uh, I, I think that he just he doesn't come off as the the, the harsh. He's a good old boy, no doubt about it. 
you know, he's come, he comes from that background of being a good old boy, but he's not as harsh. Uh, and he, he seems more sympathetic and he does tend to try to work across the aisle. If you look last week when they were talking about trying to impeach Fannie Willis, he came out and said, and said, Hey, you know, that's, that's unconstitutional. You shouldn't do it. And if you try to do it, you know, we're going to fight you tooth the nail. I think that was, a, I think it was a good strategy on, on his part that he's showing that. And, and I think it may be good at some point because we're so polarized now as a nation. Um, we've got to try to get back towards the center. Uh, I sit on the election board here uh, that was taken over by, by the Republicans and knowing that 99.9% of the time, I'm going to lose whatever motion I put on the floor and I can't stop them from doing anything because we simply don't have the votes and the and the the vote that is the deciding vote is selected by our local judges here who most of them their political affiliation is Republican Party you know whether they declare it or not they're part of the Republican Party so they've got three votes and so they control the election board and that comes as a result of the changing demographics here in Georgia Georgia is becoming a, a black and brown state, and you look at what Stacey Abrams did and her efforts uh, running for government, and they're trying to overturn many of the efforts that were made to bring millions of new voters to uh, into the electoral system, and, and that's the sort of that that's the fight I fight more so here now than ever. There's there is this, and it's not even hidden. There is this open attempt to discourage people from voting and being part of the political process. You know, it just wouldn't surprise me if, if Georgia tried to go back to the to the time where you got to count the number of gumballs in the jar in order to vote. That's just how restrictive we're coming here uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of voting and being able to cast a ballot. Right. And you kind of gave an example for my next question. But before I, I said anything about that, I think if Kemp is the Republican nominee in 2024, it's by convention. I think with all the trials going on and everything, if if Donald Trump gets convicted on any one of those before they convene, and I guess it's September uh, in Philadelphia, I think it's Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, because the Democratic convention is in Chicago. So I think they're going to be in Philadelphia. And... I think that's the only way that that's how somebody like a Kemp gets in. It'll be like an old fashioned convention where they used to draft the candidates instead of the primaries. Um, but, but your answer <clears throat> kind of led into the other question about how tough is it to, to govern in this Republican supermajority, this MAGA supermajority even, because you, you sit on an election board, and most a lot of the damage is being done in election boards, school boards. We got a town in Alabama that basically told this black man he can't be mayor because we won't give it up. I mean, so the the more local it is, is more entrenched. And we still got a majority of the state houses in this country that are Republican majority. So just as somebody that's that's dealing with that, how how tough is it? To, to try to govern 
when you've got these folks, you know, that are so cultish and, and, and narrow-minded in their approach to governing? i give you an example that just happened literally on Tuesday. And that was our last election board meeting. I introduced um, a motion to adopt a proclamation uh, recognizing September um, September 19th as National Voter Registration Day. One page, uh, one page proclamation. And in the first sentence, I used the word, well, I used the word, we used the word democracy throughout the document. And one of those, one of the Republicans said, Dexter, I'm 99.5% in support of this proclamation. I just need you to change one thing. And I said, well, what's that? He said, in the first uh, sentence, you talk about America being a democracy. And in fact, America is a republic. And <laughs> I'm like, so we're going to sit here, we're going to fight over the word republic and democracy when we all know that democracy is an, is an ideology, is an ideal. I said, in fact, if you were to poll 100 people, 100 Americans, and ask them, whether America is uh, a republic or democracy, I guarantee you nine out of 10 is gonna say it's a democracy. That is the word that we used. And, and, and that is not, you know, that's another one of those ways to chip away at participation in democracy. If the very body that governs elections can agree on something as simple as promoting voter registration as a means to ensure democracy and ensure participation. That gives you a clear idea as to where they're coming. Uh, a month prior to that, we had a, a motion where they brought in um, groups from across the state to try to convince us to go back to paper ballots you know, which is something, you know, that's happening all across this country. There's this move, uh, there's this move to do away with the machine that go back to paper ballots with these false claims that the machines are able to be tampered with and the elections are being stolen. Absolutely no evidence that any votes have been stolen anywhere. I've been asking this, I've been asking for empirical evidence for the last two years about all this fraud. The fraud that the Republicans claim is happening. I did actually um, did a report for the Southern Partners Fund uh, around elections, and I looked at all. I looked at the Southern states and fraud in the fraud in the Southern states, and there was virtually no evidence of electoral fraud anywhere in the South. Um, but they would have you convinced that the election was actually stolen. Now. I'm trying to figure out why there's so much attention paid to that, but there's very little attention paid to January 6th and the insurrection that occurred. And to <laughs> and you look at the fact that the guy who just, the person who just sentenced to 22 years, he is a minority. And so they are doing this narrative that Republicans have out there. It's just not true. But people are buying into it, and they're going into these elect these local boards, and they're trying to push through policies 
that limit access to everything, whether it's whether it's doing away with African American history in the schools, you know, whether it's doing away with voting machines. They have this plan until their credit is working. You know, I'm a Democrat, probably lean more towards being an uh, an, an, an independent. Um, but I'm a registered Democrat, voted Democrat in every election I've ever had. But the Democrats, we have to, we have to come up with talking points that we can replicate across the country, as opposed to we always Democrats are always arguing about who's right. And that's the one thing that the Republicans have gotten right. They come up with a plan, they come up with ideals, they put they, they put those points down on paper. And everybody stays to those talking points. You know, nobody, no, nobody goes, for the most part, nobody goes uh, off uh, script. Whereas with, 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 with Democrats, we're, we're too busy arguing with each other. We're too busy looking to see who can get credit for doing things and things of that nature. And, and we got to get to a place where we're working together to bring about change. My, my, my brother says all the time, we got to get to a place where we got uh, the right, the right faces in the right places. We just got too many people, you know, who may look like us, who in the you put them in positions of power, and then they do absolutely nothing to benefit the very people that put them in positions of power. It is, you know, it is, it is, it is so. It's, it's almost. I want to use the word disgusting. How they can come into our neighborhoods and come into our churches at election time and make all these promises. And they get in office, and the only thing that they're good at is improving things of their livelihood. And that's what they're good at. They're, they're good at they go into office flat broke, and they'll come out of office and their pockets are full. And, and it seems like politics is just how you know how they're able to get ahead in life and, and, and make and live the American dream. And they're not there to serve the, they're not there to serve the people. And we've got to get to a point where we start calling these individuals out. We're just, we're too nice. Yeah. And, it, you know, one of the things I've always, one of my mantras in politics always been that black politics main agenda is to build black wealth, but it's not about individual wealth. It's about community wealth. And a lot of these brothers and sisters get in these positions and, and, and they, they take care of themselves, but they don't take care of the constituents that put them in. Um, and they cross lines and they can't get back. And the one stat I always used to throw at them, you know, when I was elected was that 8% of the elected officials in the United States look like us, but over a third of all the people indicted look like us. <laughs> so <laughs> I try to tell you, you can't do what these folks do. You can't, you can't get away with that. But that kind of leads me to my last question with you. And you had mentioned something initially where you said you were kind of distancing yourself or kind of going in a different direction from a lot of the SCLC work that you did. And so my question to you is having been a civil rights advocate as, as, as being somebody that, you know, your practice deals with criminal justice and, and defending folks. The struggle of historical historic civil rights organizations in this day and time uh, 
we, we're seeing young people getting out here. We, we now have somebody of that Gen Z generation now actually in Congress. Um, and it's basically getting ready to be their time to step up and lead. But a lot of them are not affiliated with any of the organizations. I remember when I was running, one of the questions people used to ask me were, are you a life member of the NAACP, right? We don't ask that question anymore. These voters don't seem to care about that. And I don't know, you know, if it's PR or uh, lack of effectiveness or what the deal is, but outside of the NAACP, we don't really hear about a lot of the organizations. In the black community, we'll hear about the National <clears throat> Council of Negro Women. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, say something about the SCLC, but they're not getting the same kind of national respect and attention. And so tell me in your own words, why do you think that is? What, what's going on? And, and do we need to get away from that model? Uh, of having these organizations and just and do something different. What's what's your thought on that? You know, I, I struggle with that question. You know, almost on a daily basis, and having you know cut my teeth on being in national civil rights organizations, whether it was the Center for Democratic Renewal started uh, by Reverend C. T. Vivian, whether it was the whether it's General Council of the National Southern Christian Leadership Conference setting up almost 100 chapters during my tenure, you know, what I see is there is a feeling of distrust for the large civil rights organizations. We used to say they were outdated and then ineffective. But if you look back the last 10 years, and it, and it, and it sort of started, I think the impetus of it was when President Obama was elected, you know, he made the the famous quote that a rising tide lifts all boats and that he was not going to have a black agenda as president. I think that was taken as a, uh, a signal to a lot of people to move away from supporting these national civil rights organizations. Then you had a, a, you had the emergence of black lives matter that really created a, a split within the civil rights community because they were gonna do it different. They were gonna have a leaderless movement. From the very beginning, and I took a lot of flack for this, but I, I just, Eric, I just got to the point where I'm just gonna tell. I'm just gonna get the flack because I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say what I see. There was no way you could give a leaderless organization with no clear lines of authority, $100 million, and not think what happened was going to happen. There was just, there were no levels of accountability. And so you had distrust to support Black Lives Matter, but 2023, where is Black Lives Matter? They no longer exist. And, and now white people can say, you know, corporations, football teams, gave them $100 million, and the only thing they can show for it is a big house in California. Uh, somebody somebody hired their brother to be a security agent and paid them almost a million dollars a year. You know, things of that nature. And, and so now you don't even have Black Lives Matter. 
to, to a large extent. The NAACP uh, is probably more of a corporate fundraiser at this, at this point. Uh, they're still very effective at the national level in D.C. as it relates to policy and policy, and policy development, but they're not very active on the local ground. Uh, SCLC has essentially been on life support for the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, there, are no, there are no chapters. There, are no own, there seems to be no ongoing uh, efforts to rebuild uh, to rebuild a grassroots network of organizers. They're still doing some doing some wonderful work, but they've already abandoned the traditional model of being in the community and building organizations from the ground up. Their, their chapters, uh, for the most part, are, are not existent. Uh, the NAACP, you know, you got good chapters, you got good state chapters, and then you got some that are non-existent. Uh, you, you got others who are doing work around election work, who I think are doing like Helen Butler and, and Melanie Campbell. I think they're doing some great work around election uh, election work, but they're not getting the support that that we need. You know, Georgia is close to being a blue, could be a blue state again. I think it's been so long since we've been a blue state, people forget we used to be a blue state. Right. <laughs> It is just that people just think that we are, we've always been Republican. That just that's just not the case. You know, it's a relatively new phenomenon historically speaking. Um, we could get back there, uh, but there's lack of resources. I, I think there's still a need for civil rights organizations. I think what we have to do is get in a room somewhere and acknowledge where our strengths are and then look at where our weaknesses are. And one of the weaknesses that we have as a movement in general is we speak in terms as if we're still right after the end of segregation or the end of slavery. And we don't do enough to talk about the advances that we made as a community. And we don't do enough to talk about what we left behind as a community following uh, integration. You know, during segregation, we were right, we were, we were married at almost an 80% rate. Now, 80% um, of the households are without, without a father. Now, that's a direct, that's a direct uh, result of our failure to hold on to what got us through slavery, which was family values. We now have uh, social media has created an, an atmosphere now where we reward ignorance. You know, the more silly you are, the more, the more vulgar you are, uh, the more money that you can make. You got people now on social media making millions of dollars with not one bit of uh, love for the community. They don't care. They just care. They the only thing we care about as a community now is getting the bag. We've got highest numbers of black on black crime, and nobody's talking about it. I, I never thought I would get to a place where on a weekly basis, six-year-olds, one-year-old, even six-month-old children 
are being murdered and there's no outcry about it. We just we just accept it now. And that's just sad. It's sad that we have a um, we have a drug culture now that is played out on television, Tubi, Netflix every day, where we're glorifying these individuals as if they are to be modeled. Whereas the young people who are trying to do the right thing, you know, they can't get the support that they need. Uh, the school system, you know, I, I think at this point we're reading at a less than a fifth grade level. So we're regressing in terms of education, despite the fact that we now have access to educational um, institutions we never had access to 50 years ago. So where are all these where are all these these academics and uh, individuals who 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 graduate who are graduating? Where are they? They're not in their communities. There's no commitment to their to their communities for the most part. And and I, and I've learned I can I can make those statements because the people who are actually doing the work they never get offended by that because they're going to do the work regardless. But I think as a people, we have just abandoned who we are. There is no, uh, we are no longer my brother's keeper in the African-American community. And that's the problem that we have. And people, we have become an individualistic society. Everybody's trying to get a, trying to get a bag. As long as it, it doesn't come on your doorstep, we're not, we're not going to get involved. And, and we're missing that. And I think, you know, four weeks ago, we saw what happened in Alabama with the um, uh, with the boat incident. And we saw how you could feel the energy, how black people like, yes, this is, you know, we're unified. And you could just feel that energy that permeated the country. We were proud to be black when we saw that young, young brother swimming across uh, <laughs> swimming across from the boat to get to the dock to help the, to help his coworker, you know, we was cheering him on. What happened to that spirit? It's been what a month ago, right? You know, a, a month later, we we just slide back into this this existence of just go along to get along. If my family's okay, my family's okay. Poverty is on the rise homelessness. You look at the city of Atlanta where they're, they're not talking about, you know, building uh, uh, tiny houses and uh, to try to alleviate some of the homelessness. You know, this, there are not enough resources. People are overworked. Uh, they're not being respected. We got our young, we, we got educators who go to work every day sometimes and fear their life. They're, they're being totally disrespected by students, by some administrators, and we just we, we take it for granted. We don't do anything about it. You know, I say all the time, the world we're living in now is upside down. You know, and that's why I've gotten to a point in that area where I just really don't worry about white people anymore. I, I, that's, I don't worry about them because they're just not our biggest enemy. You know, I believe in systematic racism. I preached on it. I've researched it. I know it exists. I know that systematic racism exists. 
But I also know that a lot of the problems that we have, we have those problems because we traded in the values that we had during the 60s and during slavery, you know, for this, this new uh, individualistic and narcissistic uh, view of life. And it's, it's destroying our community. There's no, there's, there's no reason why, you know, African-Americans who have one of the largest spending blocks in the world, that we should be living in the type of uh, communities that we live in now. It just it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that we just keep fighting for something that we just put our heads together, you know, pooled our money together, put our money in, into black banks, supported our black schools. I know, and, and it sounds uh, it sounds like I'm going backwards. But you know, we're, it seems like we're the only community that has a problem with trying to build our own community. You know, they said the lifespan of a, of a dollar in the black community is less than 24 hours. You know, as soon as we get it, you know, it, it's gone. And the, the old joke used to be, used to be, give black people reparations because by the time the next day they'll go out, they'll go out and buy Cadillacs, and you know, they won't have the money anyway because the money doesn't, it doesn't stay in our community. You know, we got to start having some, some real conversations. We got to have conversations about personal relationships between black men and, and, and black women uh, because people don't want to talk about it. But, you know, we're not getting married. Uh, you've got men out here having kids by multiple women and they're proud to have all these baby daddies and we, we laugh about it. But at the same time, it's destroying the community. And I think back to a few weeks ago, uh, I was watching that Breakfast Club interview with Charlemagne and Larry Elder. Not being a Larry Elder fan, I'm sorry, Larry Elder made some points that they just could not refute. And he was just talking about, he was talking about the facts and the numbers. And Charlemagne said, well, what do white people do wrong? <laughs> and I'm like, that whole conversation just went over his head. The reality of it is we can change a lot of the bad things in our community if we just decide to have, you know, a set of standards. Yeah, and I and I think the the closeout, I think that was the 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 hidden value of the organizational structure that we had. That was the hidden value of these big national organizations that were speaking to the country about our concerns because they represented different facets of the community. Even, even if you as a black person didn't agree with certain directions like the nation of Islam or once SNCC under Stokely Carmichael slash Kwame Touré took over the more m militant side, but those voices were being heard in the national discussion on a more consistent basis. And without that structure, you know, it's, it's, there are people that are making the outcry, but when you don't have that megaphone, it makes it harder to be heard. So, uh, yeah. look, brother, we gotta go. <laughs> so, I knew that's why I wanted to have you on because I knew that you were going to uh, give some some responses that people needed to hear and even to talk about 
Um, so I appreciate you coming on, brother. Um, and and we can't let this be the last time. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we'll we'll get you back on and and see where we are <laughs> the next time we get together. That sound good. Report. Sounds good. All right, sir. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Dexter Wimbush, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we are back. Um, Before I um, get into what I want to say, let me just uh, publicly thank the uh, Black Podcasting Awards for uh, making some excellent selections for nominees uh unfortunately i am not a nominee this year uh, but that's okay because it's all about doing the work and as i've explained in previous podcasts uh, it's all about the support that this organization gives right um and so the black podcasting awards uh, are going to happen on the 24th, I believe. And um, as you heard, they're going to do it at uh, Brother Colbert's studio on time, in Times Square. Uh, at least the, the hosts of the show and, and maybe some of the nominees might be there. I don't know how they're going to logistically do it. Uh, hopefully next year, if we don't have a resurgence of COVID, um, we'll actually finally get to have an award show where all the nominees can attend. And then anybody else who wants to attend as well and physically get the award from the presenter at the event. But until then, um, y'all tune in, y'all, you know, go to, um, any one of the social media sites that you're hooked up with black pot awards is, is connected, <laughs> whether it's Facebook or TikTok or Twitter X, whatever they're in there. So again, I want to thank them for uh, the work that they're doing and it's getting better and better every year, which also means that the competition is getting better and better. So if I really want an award, I got to step up my game some kind of way. But nonetheless, um, I'm I'm really proud of how that organization has come in the last three years. And it's only going to get better. And between them and the Black Podcasters Association, they, they're, they're making sure that our voices are heard and that we put out quality product to make sure that our voices are heard, right? So speaking about voices, how about Brother Wimbish, right? How powerful, I I mean, I hope y'all felt 
how sincere and committed this brother is to to the community. And, you know, I, I gave a long introduction and all that. And, um, you know, some people do short introductions. Some people do long ones. But it was, I think the introduction was worthy of the conversation. And I hope you agree with that. I hope you got something out of that. And if there are some things that you want to challenge, you know, feel free to let me know. Um, but, and by the way, he's on LinkedIn and Facebook and TikTok. If y'all want to reach out to him, it's Dexter D X T R Wimbish W I M B I S H. Uh, and just, you know, search engines and just follow what he's doing online. But, uh, you know, he's one of those people, you know, he was not pushing a book or anything like that. Um, but I knew he had something to say. And I wanted to make sure that I gave him a platform to say it. And I hope that it opens the door for other people who are doing the work that I'm doing uh, to to give him uh, a similar platform because he's one of the voices that we need. Uh, and, you know, somebody that's been a veteran of the movement, you know, a young veteran, like a lot of us. And, uh, you know, and he's, he's, he's been on this journey and he comes from a lot of different perspectives. And so that's why I wanted to pick his brain. And I hope that y'all enjoyed the conversation. Um, one of the things that I always mention is that, you know, a lot of good conversation happens after the interview. So one thing I wanted to kind of bring forward from the after interview conversation started during the interview when I asked the question about these historical institutions. And let me give you my perspective on that. You heard his. My perspective on it is that the NAACP is the only organization that's really getting national attention for what they're doing. It's considered the oldest civil rights organization in the United States. And, you know, and a good friend of mine is the president. And I just saw he was in Los Angeles marching with the uh, writers and the actors the other day. So I'm really proud of him and, and what the NAACP continues to stand for. What is disappointing is that there are some organizations, and, and I mentioned the National Council of Negro Women, who are not getting the attention they deserve. Um, they're out there fighting just as hard, and especially when there's been an incredible emphasis on uplifting black women. It would seem like that this organization would get a lot more love and a lot more attention drawn to them because that's been their sole purpose 
ever since they were created, right? And, you know, I, I grew up at a time where I, I met Dorothy Hyde and I knew uh, C. Dolores Tucker and, and, and uh, Dr. Mosley in Jackson that basically started and ran the, the chapter in, in Mississippi. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the sisters that are in positions that are either my age or just a little bit older, a lot of them cut their teeth in the NCNW. And so that's an organization that's out there doing stuff that needs to be uplifted. And then you have the SELC, the organization Dr. King started, which you know, as 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 Brother Wimbish said, they they've kind of gone away from the model of grassroots organizing, and they're not as viable as they used to be, right? And um, you know, and I and I support and been a part of that organization, uh, NAACP, and and other groups. Right. I mean, I've even been a part of Encobra dealing with reparations and, you know, just trying to offer my talent other than just being an elected official, offer my talent to grassroots organizations. Right. You know, I work for the ACLU and did my best to try to build coalitions with older vets and, and younger uh, up and coming leaders to to continue the fight. And I think that's that's the sad thing about not having these national organizations in the forefront of the discussion anymore. Because you know, it just it, there's no fail safe anymore. Um you know, and and I appreciate the young people trying to do what they wanted to do with Black Lives Matter. Um, as far as the organization, the concept that Black Lives Matter is more important than the organization. Let's let's be clear. Uh, we want that in everybody's mindset and conscience. And whereas the general concept is, yes, every life matters, and especially if you're coming from a Christian perspective or any Abrahamic religion, to be honest, um, you know, in the Jewish tradition, in the Islamic tradition, all lives are important. But we wanted to stress the phrase Black Lives Matter because George Floyd was a black man, right? Tamir Rice a black man. Sandra Bland was a black woman. Breonna Taylor was a black woman. And I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. Right? And so if you say all lives matter, then we shouldn't have to say that black lives matter, but we say black lives matter because you don't think that it does or you don't act like it. So we wanted to, you know, include the black lives and the all lives is basically what we're saying. But as far as the organization goes to try to have an organization that quote unquote, didn't have a leader, you know, the question is, 
where where are we now with that movement? Excuse me. I think it's splintered off, and we've got different factions, and I'm going to have some guests to kind of talk about where some of those factions have splintered to, right? We've got, you know, this situation in Atlanta where they're trying to stop the building of a police training center um, along with a major studio. And that's the other thing that people are not picking up in that discussion. There's two constructions going on. That's going to get rid of this forest. That's people are saying of the lungs of Atlanta. It's like you have this training facility, state of our training facility for the police and the fire department. And then you have a movie studio. So if it was just a, police training center, then it could just be a conversation between the citizens and the leadership of Atlanta and try to figure out a way to make this work, whether it's there or somewhere else. But you've got a private developer that's going to do some damage over there too. And so it's like, you know, uh, it's an issue. And the environment is an issue that needs to be seriously discussed and figure out how we can come up with a solution, right? So we've got people that have splintered off from Black Lives Matter to deal with that issue. And, you know, what's going on in Buffalo and what's going on in Flint and what's going on in Houston and what's going on in uh, Los Angeles. So it, it just name a city. Chicago, it, it, everybody's just kind of, splintered off and trying to deal with issues in their own community. And so one of the beauties of having podcasts like mine and others is that a lot of those people will have a voice and a lot of them have started their own podcast too, but to have a platform where they can come on and let people know that there are folks fighting the good fight. And it's not just, a bunch of folks with a microphone just complaining all the time, right? There are actually people on the ground. But the value of the national organizations was that for a time, they helped direct the focus. They were able to present, and that's why the National Urban League does a state of black America every year, right? People say, what's the black agenda? How about look at the state of black America and get your answer, right? Cause they put that out every year. And if you're a black politician, if you're a black elected official, those are your talking points when you run for office. doesn't matter if you're running against somebody like a Marjorie Taylor green, or you're running in a district that's 85% black. Those are your talking points. And if you're not trying to address those issues, then we don't need you in office, right? So, I mean, that's, that's where we are. And those nas these national organizations play a role in that. And that's what they were built for. They were built to be the support mechanism for our voices. They were built to be the support mechanism to make sure that democracy works for everybody. And you, and you heard brother Wimpus talk about somebody getting into semantics about democracy and we're a Republic and it, it is a 
Democratic Republic, for those of you who fell asleep in social studies, right? It's a democracy because every citizen can participate. It's a republic because we make the decision to choose people to handle the day-to-day business of government. That's why people run for office. If we were a democracy like the Greeks, then we would have ballot initiatives and referendums every month, right? We'd have to vote on this ordinance or that law or whatever. And if it was just a monarchy or whatever, it's just a select group of people pick the leaders, you know, then it would be a republic and the citizens wouldn't really have any say-so in it, right? So we're a democratic republic. I mean, it's in the name of Congo. We say the Congo, but the official name of the country is the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? So if our African cousins get it, then we should get it, right? But I think black folks understand, even if you did fall asleep in social studies, I think you understand the concept that everybody gets to pick the leaders. That's what makes us a democratic republic, right? And because we have built this confederation of states that have agreed to fall under one U.S. constitution, then we're a nation state, right? And I'm not trying to sound like a professor or anything, but I'm just breaking it down. So when you hear these white folks that are Republicans or Magites or whatever, trying to play games with words, hit them back with information, right? So that they understand that you're not part of the game in the sense that you can lie to me or you can misinform me. The United States of America is a nation state that is a democratic republic. Hence why we have a Democratic Party and a Republican Party. They're playing off of the names, right? But let me wrap up with this thought about national organizations. So black folks may not think that they're important, right, anymore. They think that it doesn't matter. So I, I, I challenge you to do this. I want you to Google Project 2025. You will see, when you find that, you will find a web link. And you will see on that website a platform that has been set up for whoever the next Republican president will be. Right. Whether it is Mr. Trump or some other nominee. They've got a plan of what they want to do for each government agency. They have a playbook that they want to implement within the first 180 days of that Republican presidency. They are setting up a database 
of individuals that want to work for that Republican administration, and they are setting up training to make sure that these folks follow that playbook, right? But the most important thing I want you to see out of all of that is the number of national organizations that have contributed or is supporting this Project 2025. Because, see, the other folks are using their national organizations to do this work. And the other folks are using these national organizations to disseminate information, misinformation, just whatever. They're communicating with their people, right? And so we understood 50, 60 years ago that we had to have national organizations to communicate with our people and to put forth ideas and to create an agenda that our folks could rally around for our benefit. But now we want to get away from that and the other folks are doubling down on it. Maybe, just maybe, because we're resilient people, we'll get through this like that. And maybe, just maybe, you may not want to have the older organizations be the lead. But you got to be organized if you're going to fight oppressors. You've got to be organized if you're going to fight fascists. You've got to be organized if you're going to fight white supremacists. That's just a fact. You've got to be organized. And if you're not, then it's going to be an uphill struggle to push for progress time and time again. For whatever opinion people might have about Black Lives Matter and from 2014 to 2021, it gave a semblance, even if it wasn't a quote-unquote leader, it gave a semblance of an organization that the other side had to deal with. It gave voice to the people who were being oppressed and basically being killed. That's the power of being organized. That's the power of structure. And we've got to have that structure to fight this battle. If you want to fight this battle without guns, if you want to fight this battle without tanks, if you want to fight this battle without jet planes or drones, You've got to be organized. You've got to have structure. And you've got to have faith in that structure. And you've got to put strong people in leadership of those structures. That's got to happen. Again, like I said in the last podcast, democracy is not dead. But if we keep fighting each other about who's really a black person, 
<laughs> who's really a black American at this point. Uh, you know, uh, those school days arguments are 30 years old and outdated. Doesn't matter if you got good or bad hair. Doesn't matter if you're light skinned or dark skinned. Doesn't matter if you came from the Caribbean or you were born in Illinois or South Carolina, right? If you're black in America, you're fighting a battle. And tribalism is not going to get it. Tribalism is not going to win. Structure is. Organization is. And we've proven before that we can do it, and we can do it again. I mean, we're here. We're not going anywhere. And we need to send a message that's loud and clear to that point. Until next time. Thank you.